Welcome to the Global Visions podcast. My name is Ashton Higgins, and I'll be today's host. The podcast is produced in conjunction with the Brown Journal of World Affairs and seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are honored to be hosting our next guest of the podcast today, Dr. Jacob George. Dr. George is the director of Utah Neurorobotics Lab and a professor of neuroengineering at the University of Utah, where he conducts research on bionic prosthetics. Dr. George's lab is currently looking at expanding and commercializing prosthetics that connect the machine with the patient's nervous system, giving them greater sensory capacities. Professor George, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Excited to talk. All right. So just jumping in to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background in neuroscience and how you first became involved in your field of research, specifically, you know, working with bionic prosthetics? Yeah. So my background is actually really interdisciplinary. I uh, started in biomedical engineering at the University of Texas. Um, I kind of went into biomedical engineering because I kind of thought I wanted to go into medicine. I knew I wanted to help people I liked engineering. I liked playing with Legos as a kid a lot and thinking about math and science. And so as a high school student, I didn't honestly know, you know, directly where I would end up. Um, so I started in biomedical engineering. Um, I found that I really liked a lot of my computer programming classes and I really liked being in research. And I had always been kind of fascinated about the idea of a brain computer interface, um, just reading cool videos or watching cool videos and reading cool things online. I started getting involved in undergraduate research while I was at the University of Texas at Austin, but they didn't actually have anyone doing really what I was looking for in, in brain computer interfaces. So I um, applied to some research experiences for undergraduates and got an offer to come to the University of Utah. Um, and it's kind of funny because at the time um, I was a little hesitant. I was like, I don't really know much about Utah. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to come out here, but I ended up falling in love with it and then did my PhD there, my postdoc there, and now I'm there as a faculty member. So Utah is an awesome place. Shout out to <laughs> the University of Utah. But yeah, so uh, when I was, uh, at, during that summer that I spent at the University of Utah as a research, summer undergraduate researcher, I got involved working with, with Greg Clark and some other individuals at the University of Utah doing um, invasive neural prosthetics. And in particular, I was developing some software for them. And um, we had a participant at the time who had an, an you know, amputation and, and told us that losing a limb was like losing a family member, except that for this individual, he felt he was reminded of it every single day. Um, and that really stuck with me. Um, I had lost family members in the past. And, you know, the thought of constantly being, you know, reminded of your loss by a lack of autonomy and a lack of dexterity and chronic pain and all these other issues that come from um, limb loss um, was, you know, particularly eye-opening for me. Um, and it was, you know, really motivating to be working with these patients um, and, you know, seeing the impact that we can have. And it's a really great time to be in the field of neural prosthetics. Um, so that was kind of my introduction to it. And then I decided to continue uh, research in that area. I went on to do my PhD in biomedical engineering, and then I did a postdoc in mechanical engineering. And now I'm actually faculty in a department of electrical engineering alongside a department of physical medicine and rehabilitation. So very broad uh, areas that I've worked in in the past. But yeah, that was a little bit about how I got into it. And how new or developed is the field of bionic prosthetics and the sort of like neuroscience research with engineering? Yeah, so um, I, I guess I would say that the field is growing quickly, um, but it's still pretty young. We just got our first set of FDA guidelines in 2020. 
Um, so like back before 2020, people were developing products and technologies and they really didn't have much to go on for how do we actually get something like this through regulation and get something like this to the market. So in really the last two years is when there's been kind of a big push to, to get some of these things moving forward into like the commercial space and trying to get more invasive neurotechnology out. But the field as of itself, uh, more broadly speaking, has been around for a while. I mean, some of the original studies for these took place back in the 60s and earlier even. Um, so we've been doing a lot of this research, but getting to the point where it's actually something that we're doing in, in humans and trying to get onto the market is, is relatively recent. For sure. So could you then tell us a little bit more about the specific technology that you and your lab uses to establish pathways and connections in those patients and maybe talk a little bit about how you have developed that process? So we use a couple different technologies in my lab. I'll highlight two that are relatively different, um, but also have you know some unique components that overlap between them. So the first that we use is what we call the Utah Slanted Electrode Array. Um, and so this device is implanted in, in the residual arm nerves of a person with limb loss in this case. Um, so if, you know, you think about moving your hand, information from your brain transmits down to uh, your peripheral nerves, which then uh, send electrical signals to your muscles, cause your muscles to contract, um, which then pulls on your tendons and causes your actual fingers to move. In the case of limb loss, uh, you basically still have that pathway, you've just lost the, the final output, which is the hand. So you still have information coming from your brain through your nerves. Um, and actually in a lot of cases, you still have muscles present as well. So what that means is we use this device as a way to get inside of the nerve and pick up on those electrical signals. So we can kind of listen in on what the nerves are naturally trying to convey. Um, this is an, an invasive device uh, that we can pick up on that information send those signals to a computer, a computer can process those signals using artificial intelligence algorithms and actually correlate those to what a person would be trying to do. Um, so then we can pick up those signals and decipher what a person's thinking about trying to do. So in some ways, it's kind of like reading a person's mind in the sense that we're reading the, the intent of their hand that's missing, but then allowing them to, to move it based on a computer predicting that. So that's the, the Utah Electrode Array. It can also do... Um, Another component of that is, is providing a sense of touch back. So those, when you reach out and grab an object, for example, your fingers convert a mechanical force into an electrical signal that travels up your nerves. And that electrical signal is a series of digital pulses. You can kind of think about it that way, where it's you know a series of digital pulses going up your nerve that then go up to your brain and get interpreted as, oh, that's something that I'm grabbing in my hand, or, oh, that's a light object or a heavy object, or that feels soft or... Um, hard or anything like that. So what we can do is we can um, send signals, artificial signals using uh, electrical stimulation from this implanted device. So this device is implanted in the nerve, you send an electrical signal through that device, and it can trigger these digital pulses to occur as they would naturally, um, and travel back up the brain and get interpreted again as some sort of sensation. So in the case of limb loss, a person doesn't have the ability to generate these signals naturally from a hand because their hand is missing, but we can provide those signals uh, to cause a person to feel a sensation. Um, and that, you know, would be the idea of taking a bionic arm that has, you know, this is a prosthetic mechanical device that has some sensors in the fingertips that can detect forces exerted on it. And we can convert those forces into electrical stimulation of the nerve 
which then communicates information back up to the brain. Um, so that's that's one technology we use. It's a, it's a very invasive device. A person has to undergo a, a surgical procedure um, to have that device implanted in them. Um, but we also have other technologies that we use that can you know, serve as non-invasive surrogates. Um, and the idea here would be using things from like the muscles. So your muscles are great naturally occurring biological amplifiers, if you will. They take electrical signals coming from the nerves and, and amplify them to a very loud volume that you can record and listen to from outside of the, the body using just the surface of the skin. Um, and so that's one way that we can pick up signals in a non-invasive way. We can also send electrical stimulation through the skin and target the nerve to cause, uh, again, sen sensations. And, you, you know, you've probably seen things online with like a TENS unit, which is trans transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. Um, and that device can be used to, to modulate neural activity as well. And so these are non-invasive. Really what my lab focuses on is using both non-invasive and invasive technologies, but really trying to push the boundaries of the amount of information we can work with. So we have high density recordings, high density types of stimulation and trying to look at ways we can process all that information in an intuitive and, and dexterous way for individuals. What do you think makes your research different from other neuroscientists and engineers? Because I understand that you're working on establishing both sensory and motor activity. So are there aspects of your research that differentiate your lab from others? I, I would say there's a, a few, yeah. So. Broadly speaking, there's a lot of people doing work in the area of, of neural prostheses, of bionic devices, of rehabilitation and robotics. So there's a lot of overlap with a lot of great research groups. So there are a couple of unique things that I really like to focus on with my lab um, that are in some ways distinguishing, but also just some ways, you know, interesting things that, that we've tried to, to leverage as much as possible. So the first is that, you know, our lab is located in a hospital. Um, so a lot of engineering labs are often, you know, siloed in the engineering district of the university. And some universities don't have a, a major medical hospital associated with them. Um, so we are located in a, in a state-of-the-art new, brand new rehabilitation hospital where there's patients, uh, researchers, clinicians, all working together in one group. So that's really a nice aspect of it. Um, and that allows us to develop technology that can be tested with patients right away. Um, so we can get their feedback early on. And that's a, that's a key thing that we really like. Along those same lines, another uh, distinguishing aspect of, of our lab and our group is that we focus very heavily on translational engineering. So there's so much cool science and engineering taking place in the field of, of neuroprostheses and neurorobotics. Um, you know, some great scientific questions about, you know, how does the brain recover from a stroke or, you know, what type of, uh, you know, signals are in, are in the brain that control how a hand moves, right? Those are some more scientifically driven questions. What our lab is interested in is, you know, given the technology that we have now, what can we do in a commercial way that could actually get this technology to patients? So we focus a lot more on the engineering challenge of, you know, not so much of, you know, why or how things occur, but focusing primarily on, you know, what can we do to make this a device that someone can use? So, th so that's a, a key distinguishing factor too, is trying to work with engineering in mind. And so for that, we partner a lot with companies. Um, we are obviously soliciting feedback from patients regularly um, and trying to keep products coming out as well. Um, and then I'd say one of the last things that I think is different, and this is just a little bit more about, um, you know, my, myself as an individual in the lab that we're operating now, but 
Um, we're a very young lab in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, my independent career as a research faculty uh, started essentially in uh, February of 2021. So uh, not long ago, but despite that, we've grown very rapidly. Or um, So that's been kind of a, a really big push. And I would say that we have um, a unique lab that it's very large um, with a lot of group of people. We have over 30 people, including undergraduates, graduate students, research associates, technicians, um, all working in the group. Um, so we're a, a very young, very ambitious, uh, but relatively large lab um, uh, given our, our timing that we've been here. So uh, those are kind of th three things, you know, working closely with patients, focusing on transitions and being, uh, you know, a, a young, but, but relatively large group. And so you mentioned those partnerships that you have with other companies and research groups. So how do you decide who to pursue partnerships with in research and how do you establish those relationships with such well-established corporations? I think we do this kind of strategically starting from, um, you know, idea and conception of, of a project. The first thing we think about is, is this something that can be brought to market um, from a couple of different points? Like one, is there is there commercial value? Like what patients is this benefiting, right? Um, who would want this type of technology? Um, and and what can we do to get it there, right? Are there major hurdles or anything that are challenging for us? Um, so if, if, if it's not something that would, you know, impact people's lives and that people want, then generally that's something we're not going to pursue. Um, so we kind of, you know, titrate what we're working on in that light first. Um, and then, you know, another component that we focus on a lot is trying to stay as close to translation as possible. So I try not to be the person developing um, a new invasive device or a new, um, you know, physical prototype, right? Um, there's a lot more regulatory aspects that take place when you need to develop those. And, you know, the average time from a, you know, new drug, like if you were to make the next ibuprofen or something, right, that could be 20 years from the conception to the actual implementation of that. And so we try to stay a little bit closer to the translational spectrum and, and, and further down the line so that we can make things happen sooner. Um, so what that means is that we want to have companies involved very quickly. Um, so the companies are often someone who has an existing product that does have approvals, but could use some new ideas or some new interfaces or some new software or some new components of it that could be um, you know, used to improve the technology and improve people's lives. And so one of the key things we often try to do is focus on software um, developments so that instead of having to go through large regulatory oversights and reimbursement processes and all these other components, we can instead um, focus on, you know, an over-the-air software update, like, you know, as you would get on your iPhone, right? Um, so having some new, and then we can have direct impact on patients, like, right away. Um, so in partnering with these companies, you know, from the idea that com we come up with, we work closely with the companies to try to make sure that there is an, a, an outlet for someone who would be interested in taking this technology to market or improving patients. So a lot of times if we have ideas, we, we first work with the companies to see who might be interested. Um, and when we come up with technology, you know, ultimately they're the ones who would license it or, or bring it that final step into the market. Um, and, you know, getting involved with them can be as simple as reaching out and saying, hey, we have a, a device that we think is relevant or we have software or technology or whatever it might be that could benefit and you can start collaborations that way. But then also it can be, you know, 
larger companies often have opportunities to sponsor research. Um, so for example, we're now working with Meta, formerly Facebook, on some projects where they put out a request um, for proposals uh, on new type of technologies. And so they've been actively looking for engagement in the uh, academic sector, and, and we've been able to, to work closely with them to try to develop new technologies in that way. What do you, have you found is the most complex or difficult aspect of your research? Yeah, that's that's a good point. I would say there's probably two big challenges. Um, one is reimbursement. So a lot of people will often think that like the FDA and, and the regulation is the hardest part, but um, you know the FDA is actually really great in working with people and trying to make sure that their technology gets in there. Right? They're they're not trying to, and this is the same with most regulatory agencies, right? They're the misconception that they're trying to um, you know, protect humans and, and and just strictly minimize risk, right? Um, they're actually not trying to just minimize risk because minimizing risk would mean not doing anything, right? <laughs> like there's no risk if you don't ever approve a new device, but they're trying to balance the trade-off between minimizing risk and, and, and bringing things better. So slight tangent, but, uh, you know, the FDA is actually not one of the biggest challenges. They're, they're actually trying to support new technology as much as possible and get it to patients. But the reimbursement strategies can be a lot harder um, because you not, you don't just have to build a device that people want and a device that people like, but you need to build a device that has a financial incentive tied to it that reimbursement companies would actually want to, um, reimburse, right? So, you know, if you make a device that costs a lot and that's where a lot of neurotechnology is, it's, it's relatively expensive. Um, it can't just be something that a person says they like and that they would want, right? You have to be able to convince an insurance company that it's going to provide, you know, a financial benefit for them by reducing pain and then the need for pain medications later on or reducing, you know, other types of injuries that might be associated or reducing caregiver burden or whatever it might be um, is kind of the compelling arguments you have to make. And that and that's challenging. Um, the other aspect that I think is a big challenge in the field right now is, going from laboratory settings to real world settings. So it's, it's relatively easy to make a device that works in a lab um, where you have controlled settings where, you know, the people who are there to operate it and assist with it, like you have multiple PhD level people there helping a patient learn to operate it. But to go from that into something that a person can just take home and operate on their own um, can be a big challenge. Um, and, and you never know what people are going to do. Like we've had patients who have implanted devices in their arm nerves and, you know, they come back to us and they were like, oh yeah, like I went whitewater rafting and I found some issue with this device, you know, implanted in my arm nerve or whatever. And we're like, oh yeah, <laughs> we didn't expect that a person would do that. Right. We have to kind of think about these things. And, you know, it's just like you, you give a toy or, you know, you give a, a thing to a, a kid, right? Or something like that. And they just come up with all sorts of ways you'd never expect to break it and find, you know, all these different challenges. And so um, being able to take something that's very highly sophisticated and well-designed in a lab environment and make it um, simple and robust enough for a home environment with many people doing all sorts of different diverse activities, uh, that's, a, that's another big challenge in the field. Well, and how many people do you expect to serve through each of your research projects? And how massive is the need for a lot of these different bionic prosthetics? 
Yeah, there's, um, it depends really on the patient population, but you know, there's a large number of individuals suffering from muscular skeletal or, or um, neuromuscular disabilities in general. Um, in the hospital that I work with, um, we work with, you know, and, and the research we do focuses primarily on three patient populations currently. So those three patient populations are individuals with spinal cord injury, particularly individuals with very high complex spinal cord injury cases. Um, we work with people with amputations, uh, so, so individuals suffering from limb loss, and then individuals who have a stroke, uh, so stroke survivors uh, and working with them to provide solutions to both rehabilitate and assist them after having a stroke. So all of these can be um, different neuromuscular conditions in which a bionic exoskeleton or prosthesis or neuroprosthesis or anything could assist them in either rehabilitating or, or um, just helping with daily activities. So thinking about numbers, you know, I would say roughly there's probably somewhere around, you know, th these are rough estimates, but, you know, roughly around 200, um, no, sorry, 20,000 new spinal cord injury patients a year in the United States. Um, that's per year in, in just the United States. Um, in terms of amputations, there's more like, you know, 200,000. So, you know, an order of magnitude greater. Um, a lot of those are, you know, partial finger, partial digit. So maybe not as critical to a need for a, a bionic prosthesis. Um, and then if you jump to, to the stroke population, which is probably the largest population, you know, you have somewhere more around 800,000 new strokes um, occurring in the United States per year. So there's a lot of people that these technologies can benefit. And that's just three patient populations that I work with, but you know, there's new neurotechnology coming out to benefit pretty much every possible, you know, impairment you could think of. So there's been some cool work on treating depression, treating obesity, even um, treating obsessive compulsive disorders, you know, all sorts of uh, neuropsychology disorders as well, as well as neuromuscular and muscular skeletal disorders. Um, so, you know, the, the large term population that can benefit from, the, from these technologies is, is huge. And then, you know, I'll also just throw a, a fun caveat in there too, which is, you know, it doesn't have to be an individual uh, suffering from, you know, neuromuscular uh, or neurological impairment, right? So a lot of times we think about these technologies as something that can um, aid an individual who's lost in some some capacity, right, in their life. But there's also technologies that are coming out that can be used to help people who are otherwise healthy. Um, so these can be preventative things, so still in the realm of healthcare, like, you know, you, you have a lot of Amazon workers who are picking up boxes and carrying them around and in all these different areas and, you know, having an exoskeleton that can assist them um, and correct their posture to make sure that they're not damaging their um, back or getting back pain long term uh, can be, you know, another type of way these technologies can exist. And beyond that, there's other cool recreational ideas about, you know, video gaming uh, that is tied to, um, you know, your brain waves or ideas of being able to control things in virtual and augmented reality. And that's, you know, some research that we've been working on as well and virtual and augmented reality and the pop, uh, ideas for who could benefit from that are much larger, right? And like anyone could in the future potentially use that. And also from the view of the general public, 
There's obviously a huge socioeconomic discrepancy in the world of bionic prosthetics, since they often do cost upwards of $8,000 for some basic models and much more for even more advanced versions. And so given that there is a lot of complex technology involved in creating them, but most insurance companies often don't cover most of the cost, how do you think we can create positive change to allow for more people to afford these prosthetics? Yeah, it's a it's a tricky problem, and one of the, I mentioned a little bit earlier too. Right, the reimbursement is a really big challenge. I would say there's two solutions here. Um, the obvious uh, solution, right, is to just lower the cost of building these devices, which is <laughs> easier said than done. But I think we're on the right track. You know, as we're building more and more of these, and more and more people are getting involved, and larger companies are starting to get invested in this. Um, those initial costs will ultimately um, go down as the market grows. Um, so, you know, computers used to be super expensive luxury things, and now everyone has a cell phone, right? And these microchips and all the different components that go into them have, have gotten really cheap. And so the idea is that maybe something like that will happen in the future to, to help reduce the cost. But the more immediate and uh, you know, still one of the bigger problems that you'll have to address regardless is, you know, convincing insurance companies to reimburse for these. And I think in, to solve that, what we really need to do is find creative ways to demonstrate that these devices are worth it. Um, I think we're starting to do that now as a field. Originally, it was a lot of things in a lab environment, very controlled. And as we're starting to to allow people to take these devices home and use them for longer and explore what makes sense to them, we can start to gather the type of data that we need to convince insurance companies that these have a positive impact on people's lives that ultimately reduce cost associated with, with health insurance, right? So if you have a person who you know, is stuck at home because they have a, a spinal cord injury and they can't move around their house, right? And they might need a, a full-time care, uh, caretaker to assist them. But if you had a bionic uh, exoskeleton or if you had a neuroprosthesis that could help a person, then you might not need that caregiver there all the time. So that could save some costs, right? Um, but, you know, the other things that are harder to measure, um, not just from an independent standpoint, but things about, you know, overall well-being. Um, so, for example, if a person is able to use a device like this to engage in more social interactions and they have a positive outcome on their life, meaning that, you know, maybe they just go to the park once or twice more a day or they interact with their friends or, you know, they're able to get to work easier, then that might cause them to live a longer life, a healthier life um, that might cause them to work for additional years um, or whatever it might be, but those types of components are much harder to measure, right? Um, and that's kind of one of the, the challenges that I think the field is facing now is trying to get these longer term measures that are a lot more implicit, you know, like kind of hidden behind the scenes about what a person is actually um, benefiting from this type of technology. Uh, so yeah, summarize, you know, make the devices cheaper, which I think will happen in time, and then find creative ways to, to get these um costs reimbursed by thinking of ways that they're benefiting uh, these patients. And so also, I know that you're also a professor. So you teach a couple of neural engineering courses at the University of Utah. So what sort of methods have you found work well to disseminate scientific knowledge like we've been talking about here to your students and also just generally to the public? Uh, Hands-on demonstrations, actively learning and actively being involved is is by far the best way to communicate this information. So regardless of whether it's in my class or in an eighth grade classroom, 
what we do is every device that we build in our lab, we also try to build an associated demonstration or demo with it. So if I have a student who's working on um, developing you know, a new exoskeleton system, they'll often build a low cost prototype or a demonstration alongside of it that they can take with them um, to show off to individuals and teach them about the technology so that they can touch it and feel it and play with it. Um, so that's an important component of, you know, outreach and involvement is allowing people to see things and feel things and, and just play around with it, right? So we have you know, visual learners, right? Tactile learners, all these other types of learning capacities. And everyone is a little bit of all of them, right? And and we want to make sure that, you know, we can get all of our different kind of senses engaged and, le and learn these things by doing and, and feeling and seeing. Um, the In my class in particular, we also spend a lot of time, you know, doing active learning outside of, um, you know, what would normally be considered, I would consider like a passive exercise, like doing a lab. Um, so like a lot, oftentimes you come into a lab and it's like, you know, move these things here, add this ingredient, add this, you know, try, try these other parameters, adjust these values. You know, you're kind of following like a set of instructions. It's kind of like, you know, a recipe, right? Where you're kind of just following the, the recipe and, and getting something done. And, and you're learning a lot as you're doing that. But at the same time, it's kind of a passive exercise. Um, in all of my classes that I teach, I try to make it much more active exercises where I say, you know, the goal of this, we have a project where we have people build um, a bionic arm. Of, it's a virtual hand that's controlled by your muscle signals. And I just tell them, you know, that's the goal. You're, you're going to make this virtual hand on this computer screen move based on your own actions. And I give them some cool equipment and I just let them figure it out. Um, so we obviously have background knowledge that goes into that. And we have a lot of times where we're walking around the classroom and engaging with people and answering questions, but letting them go through the entire process of like thinking, well, what would I do? How would I start? Where do I, what do I need to know? Um, often allows people more time to understand these uh, complex topics um, and retain that information more effectively. And what do you think is sort of the greatest impact of getting so many students of different ages involved in understanding the science behind these prosthetics? I think there's probably two key out, outputs from this that we hope to see with all of our outreach activities. One is fostering a better understanding and appreciation for um, neural engineering and neural prosthetics and all these different types of areas from the general public. Um, that translates to positive impact in terms of, you know, having people more receptive to technology, having people supporting the research funding that ultimately comes from taxpayer dollars. Most of it does. So, you know, building that understanding and appreciation from the general public is beneficial in that aspect. It also can, you know, make those individuals aware of types of, of technology that are available to them and, and help them get the best care that they need. Right. So that that's a big component. And then the other, you know, benefit that we hope to see is that people will get into this field more. So, you know, I got into the field, you know, really kind of my interest started when I was, you know, kind of in middle school, high school, where I read some cool articles online about brain computer interfaces. Like, wow, that just sounds cool, right? If I hadn't read those at a younger age, I probably wouldn't have sought out to do some of the things I did in my undergraduate, which then allowed me to really open up and get into this field. So that engagement early on um, with individuals will hopefully spark an interest and a desire for them to become um, more involved in the field, pursue the field, you know, keep the technology growing and really kind of push the, the field forward as a, as, a, as a 
broader sense. And, and it doesn't have to be specific to, to neuroengineering or neurorobotics or anything even in that nature, but really kind of getting people thinking about, you know, healthcare, engineering, and the intersection between those. So thinking about clinical engineering is often a term that we use now and, and fostering new people who can communicate between different fields, right? Interdisciplinary science and appreciation for, you know, incorporating multiple ideas and thoughts and diverse elements into research and, and development in the, you know, U.S. and global economy overall. So that's kind of the idea is that we can get more people involved and have people appreciate and understand what we're doing. That all sounds great. And then I think just before we close, I wanted to give you the chance to touch on anything else we haven't talked about yet. If there's anything lingering that you wanted to say. Kind of going off of that, what I just ended on really is that, you know, it's such an interdisciplinary field. Um, it's really an area that takes, you know, no single individual is pushing this forward, right? There's so many people all working together on this. It's really collaborative. So I'd like to thank, you know, all the people who've been involved. Um, you know, there's a ton of people involved in, in my lab, um, which is, you know, supported by, you know, a variety of different funding agencies. Um, we work a lot with different companies. So making sure uh, that, you know, individuals are aware that there's so much that happens behind the scenes. So just thanking everyone who's involved in pushing it forward. And also, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to set up uh, this interview uh, and, you know, kind of going towards the, the idea of, uh, you know, fostering a better understanding and appreciation for, for the, the field of neural engineering, neurorobotics and, you know, translational healthcare in general. Um, so I think what you guys are doing is excellent. And I'm uh, thankful to, to be here and have the opportunity to share. That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Dr. Jacob George.